Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money abroad? When you do, you should use TransferWise. Don't use a bank or PayPal. That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have 4 million customers. And their borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out today for free at TransferWise.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's TransferWise.com slash Chang, or download the app today. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Shopify. Starting a business is hard and running one is even harder. It takes determination and support to push through the ups and downs, mistakes and experiments. That's why Shopify, a leading commerce platform and partner to business owners, just opened a space in LA to help you start, grow and scale your business. You can book one-on-one support appointments or 10 classes and inspiring events. Just visit shopify.com slash LA to get started. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. I am with my friend, Evan Kleiman of Good Food, author, former life chef, restaurateur, still cooks for a lot of different things. You have done just about everything you can do in the culinary world, and I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much, David. One of the first people I wanted on this podcast was Evan. And I'm so happy because I think the world of you, um, you have been sort of this ad hoc therapist for me in Los Angeles. But the reality is, is you've been that to so many people. Well, I don't know if I've been a therapist to so many people, but I've certainly been here a really long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like when you're, when you stay in one place you don't really understand all the um, weaving in and out that you're doing until later and you look back. It always makes sense after the fact. Yeah. But I, I just was like, man, Evan's had such an amazing life. There's so many stories that she has and she's gone through so much, both as a chef, both as someone that is, I would say more or less like a culinary activist, right? And there's so much to you. And one of the things that I wanted to do is you're always interviewing everyone else. You are more or less, and she's going to probably get mad at me. You are one of the few people I think in this business that is dedicated to service towards everyone else but themselves. Maybe. More or less, right? Like My mom would have said that. <laughs> but it's true. Like who, who you are and what you do has always been about everyone else first. And I think that is at the core of hospitality and one of the reasons I'm sure you became a chef. But I was just thinking about and listening to you over the years and getting to know you. I was like, man, like, I wish people knew more about your stories. I don't even know all the stories. I think it's fascinating uh, because I think you are a pioneer in the L.A. dining scene. Perhaps. Perhaps. You don't get enough credit for that. For sure. I know how uncomfortable she is. <laughs> This, this makes me so <laughs> I know, I know. This is why I sort of love this. Uh, and if you don't know, uh, she was a chef of, how do I pronounce it right? Cafe. Angeli. Angeli Cafe. Angeli Cafe. You had a trattoria. Yeah, I had um, three places. There was Angeli Cafe on Melrose, 1984. 
Trattoria Angeli on Santa Monica Boulevard in West L.A., 1987. Angeli Mare in the Marina, 1989. Today... Zero. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that. I, I, and I feel like that's a very important story for a lot of people to listen to. You have published several cookbooks mm-hmm. and you've been the voice of KCRW Good Food since 1998. Yeah. Maybe earlier. Maybe We're not earlier. Sure. Not sure. Yeah. But, you know, I, I know how close you were with Jonathan Gold. And if Gold was probably the, the, the voice and mind of Los Angeles dining, I was thinking about this. I was like, you've probably been maybe without getting credit, the heart and soul of it, because everyone knows you. You've been an advocate of the farmer's market. You've been an advocate of basically everything that's good in Los Angeles dining. And I was like, man, I don't think Evan gets enough credit about any of this stuff. And I wanted to make sure that people knew. I'm going to start crying. (laughs) Because like, I didn't even know a lot about this stuff. And then the deeper I went down, I was like, fuck, man, like Evan's done it all. How did you, were you able to go deep? Because I don't even have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> I read a, read a lot of different things. Because here's the funny thing. You are my favorite kind of individual because you're never going to be like, oh, pay attention to me. This is what I've done. And I know you because of all the, the only time you ever ask others to do anything is for a charity or an organization it's you believe in. for somebody else, yeah. Right? And yeah. I think in this day and age, that should be celebrated more. Like it's all about me, me, me. And you're never about me. You're always about benefiting everyone else. And I was like, man, I, I have a platform. I know Evan will never talk about this on her own. So you're going to try and get me a, a kitchen? Is that what this is yeah. all about? <laughs> oh, on a variety of things. And part of this is just sort of celebrating. And and like, it's, it's a, a kind of experience that I feel more people should know about because there are more roads to how you can uh, carve out in the culinary world. You don't just have to be a certain kind of chef or thing. You can have a distinct voice and follow your own sort of intuition. I think that's what you definitely have done. And I hear your voice all the time, and it's always about everyone else that's doing something great. And I just wanted to be like... But I will say, I will say that all of the people that I interview, the reason I've done it for 21 years is because it benefits me. I mean... I learn, and I am at heart a nerd. I mean, that is the heart and soul of me, a nerd whose focus is food. So all of these interviews is like, it's like geological accretion of information over all these years. And as much as I am at the service of the person I'm interviewing, I also learn all that stuff while I'm prepping for them. So it's, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. But I still, and I'm sure most of your friends and peers would simply say, Evan needs to do more for herself too. Maybe. Probably. Yeah, probably. And I understand that feeling because this is something we talk about quite a bit, right? Yeah. And I think that we have that sentiment uh, that we share about, I mean, I wouldn't say passively looking out for yourself, but it's just not a priority. You, you, you kind of seem like you actively look out for yourself. <laughs> Just, just saying. <laughs> she is some. She will always call me on bullshit. That's for sure. So, how did it all start out? You were born and raised in Los Angeles. Yeah, I was born in Pico before Pico and Rivera came together to become Pico Rivera. So basically, Whittier 
And there was a lot of uh, military housing built there, veteran housing. And so my parents came out here from the East Coast after the war. My dad had been in the Navy during World War II, and his ship would always come in to the West Coast to be serviced, and my mom would come out from Philadelphia to meet him. And they kind of fell in love with California and thought that they were going to get to meet, you know, Mary Pickford and <laughs> all the stars, yeah, the, this unrealistic fantasy. So um, pretty soon after the war ended, they came out and they um, got this, you know, small rental house, tract house in Whittier. And, um, and we were there briefly. And then we moved to Silver Lake. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> and... and- was food something that was part of your growing up? Well, I'm Jewish. So food was part of my growing up in that it's a, you know, it's a culture that comes from a place of scarcity. So having enough is the drumbeat of every meal. Perhaps what you're eating isn't the best, most fantastic thing that's ever been made, but it is in large quantities and everybody's invited. What was your knowledge of the food world at the time? As a kid? Yeah. Like So we were um we lived a like lower middle class, I'd say. We were a lower middle class family. Um my dad died when I was seven, so then it was just me and my mom. And for women then, I mean she was a secretary for all those years. And um we didn't go out. But eating them was so different because in the 50s, if you wanted to eat food, you had to make food. There wasn't, you know, a huge amount of convenience food available to you. There was Jello. There were cream soups, <laughs> cream of mushroom soups. There was, you know, onion soup mix. But pretty much, and, and there were TV dinners, which were a new thing and were considered entertainment by my mother, not for everyday eating. So every dinner was the same. It was some kind of meat, roasted or broiled, a fresh salad, and a fresh vegetable. Sounds great. And half gallons of ice cream in the refrigerator, <laughs> in the freezer. And what was LA dining scene then? Was it was it even a thing? Well, you know, for the higher end, there was, I mean, there was Musso and Frank's, there was Scandia, there was Perino's. There were all these very, um, I mean, I thought of them as being very white. When I was growing up, you know, the sense of being Jewish was so palpable as the other that um, there was a certain level of um, society that I just didn't associate with us. And um, so the places we ate were um, thrifty drugstore um, counter, which served hot food, um, Entra Cafeteria in Hollywood, uh, Clifton's Cafeteria downtown. Um, when you talk about these cafeterias, were they like uh, blue plate specials where you have a tray and it's like yeah. sort of like the meat and three? Yeah, but you could also just go down the line and pick what you want. So I tended to specialize on sides. <laughs> so I just have mm. a plate full of tiny little dishes, you know, those great little dishes. And so I guess I was eating small plates back then. Do you think that's ever going to come back as a dining thing? I don't 
know, I just think the economy cries out for it. I mean, so many people don't have a ton of money to spend on food. And when you go out to a restaurant now, it's like a serious throwdown. I love the, I love the cafeteria experience. It's so embedded in my mind. Also because since my parents came from the East Coast, when I was a little kid, there was still a Horn and Hardart's automat. So that also was one of my earliest triggers for being uh, sort of fascinated by food and the way food's delivered, where my mom would give me a roll of nickels and set me free, and you could just put a nickel in a slot and turn it, and then the door would pop open, and you'd get your lemon ring pie or your cream spinach. That's my dream. (laughs) It's my platonic ideal of heaven uh, for a restaurant is the automat. Because it's like an art installation. (laughs) Come, come food delivery system. No customer interaction whatsoever. It's my dream. <laughs> Hashtag retail. <laughs> um, and then you did undergrad at UCLA? Yeah. And got an MBA? Yeah. And It, it didn't quite take. <laughs> <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, like you also were able to go to Europe when you were a teenager. Well, when I... Um, I graduated from high school when I was 16. I had skipped twice in school. And um, my senior year of high school, they were getting rid of midterm graduations. So you had to choose whether or not you were going to go up or, or stay back. I, I can't believe they let the students choose that, but they did. And so I elected to go up a half, a half a year. And so it ended up that when I graduated, I was 16. I had applied um, to UC Santa Cruz, which was a brand new school at that time. I think it had only been open a year. And then my second choice was Berkeley. My third choice was UCLA. I got accepted to Santa Barbara, which at that time was like the surfer school. And I was, you know, from Silver Lake. I was like this edgy kid of bohemian parents. I wanted nothing to do with UC Santa Barbara. So I went to Europe and I was able to do that because I had baked cookies the entire time I was in high school and sold them to stoners. They well, were not stoner cookies. Well played. Thank you. <laughs> so industrious. Very industrious. I was always I was always making and selling food. I didn't understand that my mother was underwriting my profits. I learned that later. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. So, when did you like uh, when did you catch the Italy bug? So I, I like on this, when I graduated, I took, I was able in those days, you took a charter flight. So it was 320 round trip. And I got one that lasted for a year and I just took off. I was, had just turned 17 and I traveled around Europe for about a year. I was really excited to go to France because I had been a French major in high school. They were not so welcoming. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> And I ended up being in Italy, which I just totally, I became besotted. I felt it was weird. It was like I felt like I belonged. And then I had these strange experiences, which I've actually recounted just in the past week to a couple of people. I just remembered that um, I was in this train car because that was when trains had compartments. And so you're in a compartment with like three other people, four other people. And I was in a first-class compartment going from Milan to Florence. And there were businessmen in super fancy, gorgeous suits and gorgeous briefcases. I mean, first of all, just the aesthetic 
of everything around me. It was just mind-blowing. And they started to talk about the meal they had just had and the meal that they were going to have. It was in Italian, but I guess I had enough French that I was able to understand. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, 17-year-old kid from Los Angeles, I've never heard an adult man talk about food in this way, ever. And the only time I've ever seen a man cook food was a barbecue where they were incinerating hot dogs or hamburgers. <laughs> and what was what was your understanding of Italian food? Because it's super interesting to me to talk to anyone that travels for food now because they have a great grasp of certain things. This was essentially going to uncharted territory. What did you what did you know? Well, I knew nothing. I knew I liked spaghetti. <laughs> I knew nothing. What did I know? I knew what a, a seven-year-old, you know, kid from Silver Lake knew at the time. Nothing, basically. But I would stay. I was not stupid, so I would stay with families. And then, you know, an Airbnb was a bed maybe in the same room <laughs> as the people that you were staying with. So I would always, I would be in a home environment, which made me feel really safe and made my mother happy. And um, I also got to focus on food because I was just, I would, they would have to kick me out, like Evan go out to the street. I wasn't like making the scene at the disco like all the other teenagers were. I just wanted to be home with the grandma and make ravioli with her or, you know, help stuff pasta or chop vegetables for them. Or I, I just, it was a place I felt so comfortable because I had always helped my mom cook. Right. I was trying to envision that. And the food that you were learning then in Italy, that food is still being made today. Like it hasn't changed. Like American food is completely different than it was 30, 40 Absolutely years ago. Absolutely the same. That's what's fascinating. But the difference is that when I said before that if you wanted to eat, you had to cook. I mean, this was the 70s in Italy, but it was still not, and it had not yet become an industrialized country. It was still very much linked to agricultural roots, even if you were in the city. So every place I stayed, there was olive oil from a cousin. There was wine made by an uncle or maybe by those people, you know, on a weekend out in the street in front of their house and then fermented in the basement. And so I'm realizing now, actually, as I'm talking to you, that that's how my palate was formed. So it was formed like like in major chords. I think of Italian as just all these very bright, accessible flavors that in a finished dish, you still taste all those individual flavors. It's not like other cuisines, which are much more complex. Did you have some kind of feelings like, why do we eat so poorly in America? No, because I didn't really eat poorly because, you know, I ate real food. Um, but it didn't have the history involved. It didn't have. It wasn't a food culture like you find in Italy. But I, the words food culture didn't even exist in my mind then. And I guess when I started to cook for my mom, and I would say probably by the time I was 10, 11, I was making dinner most nights. My, what sparked my curiosity were cookbooks, mostly of what were then called ethnic cuisines. So... My very first cookbook I ever bought with my own money was a Greek cookbook. I still have it. It I made food out of it that tasted like the food when I went to Greece during the same trip. Um, 
my mother gave me the classic cuisines of the world, the Time Life series, and I cooked my way through that. And so I part of my brain just was attached to food that's place-based. You know, I was interested in food that was attached to a geography. I think later I understood that that these were individual cultures. Were you thinking about um I mean, you majored in art management? Well, that w- my undergraduate major was Italian literature ah. and film. So come back from Italy. You're like, back, I'm all about... Come back from Italy, didn't get, didn't get um, you know, accepted to the college of my choice and started working at, um, well, I had already been working for caterers when I was in high school. That was my, my money gig. Instead of waiting tables, I worked for caterers in the kitchen. And then by the time I reapplied to UC and got accepted this time to Berkeley, I was used to earning my own money. I lasted at Berkeley for about a quarter, and then I just said, I'm out of here. <laughs> what was it about Berkeley? Let's trash Berkeley. What's up? Um, it was 1970. There were still a lot of demonstrations. I'd been really an intense student activist when I was in high school, and I really just wanted to focus on going to school. And I also wanted to work. And I knew if I came back down to L.A., I could work and go to school, which is what I did. And, um, and they, were, they were offering a, an immersion class in Italian. I thought it was so weird. I mean, I never heard of that before. And I took that class, and then that was it for me. That was like the gateway drug to Italian culture. Did you have any epiphany? You're like, oh, okay, I know I've made money catering, cooking. Is this going to be my career? No, because I'm a Jewish kid. I was supposed to be a professional. I'm supposed to get my degrees. I'm supposed to graduate, and I'm supposed to be lawyer, professor. I wanted to be a film producer. So I found that that program, the arts management program, which doesn't exist anymore. It was one of the top ones in the country that was at UCLA. And the reason I wanted to get in it, it was a nonprofit program but they had a six-month internship. And so I, I was always like a machinator. So I thought, oh, well, I can use that six-month internship to my own ends. And indeed, I ended up working at Universal in the marketing department for six months. And um, I graduated with all of my friends who ended up running ballet companies, theater companies, museums. And I went out and got a job working for a producer, reading scripts, and I was still catering. I was couldn't f- say goodbye to the food. But the world of film was not tempting enough? It was really frightening to me. What was so frightening about it? The men. Ah. It was really, really frightening. And food felt very comfortable, and I felt very, I felt accomplished, like I knew what I was doing. And so at some point, I t- said to myself, you have to choose. And around that time, there was a restaurant that opened up in L.A. called Manja. And it was a it was serving a different kind of Italian food for that moment. It was spare Tuscan style. It didn't it was didn't look like a red sauce restaurant. It had very modern interior. And so I went to the woman who owned it and I said, I know how to make this food. Let me work for you for two weeks for free. And then within a month, I think I was running the kitchen there. Very industrious. Yes. <laughs> then in the early 70s, would a restaurant like that, are they getting all their produce locally or is it still? No, it's, it's you, you pick up the phone and you call and you're getting it from a, a produce company. When did that movement happen? 80s. Pretty late. 
I mean, for me, you saw from ground zero. Yeah. Yeah. But it took me a while to participate in it. You know, my, my restaurants had such a low price point that I was often afraid to make the leap, but then I realized I was a total hypocrite because once I was doing the radio show for sure, by 1998, I had to, you know, sort of walk the walk, walk the talk, talk the walk, (laughs) whatever. Back then though, how would it have been perceived? Because I don't even think that there was a community of restaurants where you could sort of get help from, but was anyone saying, hey, no, no, you you have to buy local? No, no. First of all, people didn't, the community wasn't like it is now. It was much more, to me, it seemed much more competitive. And perhaps it's just me that I never felt like I could go to, I mean, every once in a while I would talk to Mary Sue or Susan. Because they opened up Border Grill. Well, they had City Cafe, City Cafe that was which right. was almost across the street from Angelique Cafe on Melrose. So I knew them. And they had gone to culinary school and they had worked at, you know, like restaurants, like famous restaurants. And so I felt like they were real chefs and I was just a pretend chef. So um, I could ask them stuff. But you have to remember that even ordering from produce companies, everything was from California. So if you think of it as being somewhat local, it was. Although there was this weird thing that was happening in the 80s, which was to get ingredients like arugula, radicchio. You were getting it flown in from Italy. Nobody was growing it. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Cheng Show is brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers. But using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through their meals and memories it creates and the style it expresses. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enamel cast iron, which feature the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. All cast iron is made in France since 1925 in the original French foundry, and each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsman hands. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. Bold colors and timeless design allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. I love Le Creuset. That's no BS. I use it all the time at home. It's my pots and pans of choice at home and the pots and pans of choice in our restaurants at Major Domo in LA. We use them exclusively. We use them all the time, both the cooking and to serve in. Cast iron is great for cooking, roasting, braising, boiling. It is so sturdy and really does conduct heat in the best possible way. Plus, its enamel coloring does look amazing. The colors really pop. So even if you're not cooking in it, it looks great on your kitchen stove just doing nothing. You don't even have to be cooking. It looks good and decorates. Check out the new color from Le Creuset, just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue. Inspired by the iconic natural dye, the rich, deep hue of Le Creuset's indigo is universally authentic. A timeless true blue and bold neutral in style and cultures around the world. This color is great. We also use it at Major Domo. I love it. It's the color of choice, quite frankly, because of just how much it pops. Get free shipping at lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. That's lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. 
Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Forget asking your friends for recommendations. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give a short profile of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though they're named Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can even book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. And now back to the show. I think that the 70s and 80s, because I'm just sort of like a food nerd for history, I wish we had more documentation as to how that all happened because it wasn't like New York or the East Coast where you had these sort of entrenched like culinary divisions as to how people were going to dine out and the restaurants there and the, you know, the white tablecloth. Like everything in L.A. was just new. Like it didn't exist. It was new. But also I think what happened is my generation, the boomer generation, for whom I apologize, (laughs) um, was the first generation that when we were relatively young, we had the money to travel. And so you had all of these kids backpacking through Europe or Asia or wherever they decided to go that was their passion. And then a small subset of those people who were interested in cooking would come home and try and recreate those foods. And when we were in the process of doing that, we were also going to supermarkets and asking them to carry, for example, flat leaf parsley. So in the 70s and early 80s, flat leaf parsley didn't exist. It was like curly parsley or nothing. Again, this is like so monumentally huge to me because if I can try to put myself in your shoes, this is something we all take for granted. Anyone that dines out, you don't have to be in the restaurant industry. You just assume certain things were, you know— No, but I mean, when you think about what Mexican food has been like in America forever or Chinese food forever, all the types of restaurants that are buffet, I mean, immigrants and and people trying to earn a living from cooking a place-based cuisine had to make do. You had to make do with what was here. And then as globalization happened, long-chain food distribution systems Um, started to, you know, click into gear, you know, you would rely on people bringing home things in their suitcase. Unfortunately for me, cooking Italian food, most of the stuff I needed couldn't come home in a suitcase. So you couldn't bring home prosciutto and pancetta. I mean, you could and risk, you know, them taking it. Um, But most of what I wanted were the vegetables. So for me, the farmer's market movement was just, you know, it was like, oh, great. Now I can just cook the way I know I, I need to cook to make my soul food, and it's all right here. I still can't get over the fact that you've been able to witness this complete revolution, quite frankly, and you were at the forefront of it. And I'm still not using a walker. <laughs> Imagine that. 
Because I just want more of those stories of how it all happened because it's so not just entertaining. It, it just puts everything in perspective. I just think it was, you know, there was this group of cooks. Like I think about Joyce Goldstein in San Francisco who for years she she worked um, for Alice um, Waters when Chez Panisse first opened. And she became known in San Francisco as a great cooking teacher. And then she she started writing cookbooks really young and then she opened Square One, and Square One was based on her travels and how much she loved Mediterranean food. And she just started pumping it out. And I think for all of us, we viewed it as an educational enterprise, not just delivering food on a plate. So, I mean, I would give my waiters these insane tests. I would make them learn how to pronounce everything correctly. They would get tested on their pronunciation. They had to know what different regions were and, and what the characteristics were. And I know Joyce was doing that too. So many chefs were doing that. So all this information that everybody now gets spoon-fed to them on the internet or through millions of YouTube videos, for my generation, it was transmitted through chefs. I think that's the first time, really, that as chefs came out from the kitchen, it wasn't just to say hi and shake a hand. It was to say, oh, you like that plate? Well, this is what's on that plate. These are the people behind that plate. Nobody told that story before. And was there a lag? Was that happening at Chez Panisse in Berkeley before? And, oh, yeah. And then L.A. caught on, what, five years later? I'm really bad at timeline stuff. But I would say that there was always a give and take um, between Northern and Southern California. And also there were always early adopters, um, you know, Jonathan Waxman and Michael Roberts, who had a restaurant now unfortunately named Trump. <laughs> Trump's. Um, I mean, he was the, the very early adopters of what we now call California cuisine. They were all into this. So who were the central figures to why we have such a great cuisine today in LA, right? Who would you say? Just because like, I want, I think people need to know this shit. <laughs> well, the guys were probably Ken Frank and um, Jonathan Waxman, Michael Roberts. And then the women, I mean, the thing that was great about LA was there was this coterie of women that just came to the fore. So Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Vinegar, um, you know, of course- Do you think they get enough credit for what they've done? No. Not at all, right? Well, well they I mean, got recognized recently in the yeah, LA Times. The, yeah, and, and they're getting recognized hugely, bigly at, um, <laughs> at the Smithsonian um, soon. And um, they were the first show on on Food Network, the first I chef show. Too Hot Tamales. Too Hot Tamales. I watched it religiously. And they were the first hosts of Good Food on KCRW. But then there was also, you know, Mark Peel who was married to Nancy Silverton at, at that time at Campanile. And Campanile was one of those restaurants that spawned a, um, oh, of course, Wolfgang Puck. How could I not say Wolfgang Puck? Wolfgang Puck and, um, um, oh, having a, an elderly brain for it, Patina Man. Uh, Joaquin. Yeah, Joaquin Slichal. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, and I forgot, he, he started everything out here. Now that's like a global yeah. Massive chain. Yeah, Max Otriange. Wow. Yeah. And um, 
gosh, I think of where when when Max Triage was a restaurant, I was cooking at a place called Cadillac Cafe on La Cienega. And the owner, that owner, she was just like a couple of years older than me, and she was just making like roadhouse food in her from her mind. <laughs> You know, so she made like this crazy good um, Chinese chicken salad and and meatloaf sandwiches, but like updated. I mean, this sort of there's like few things I want to talk about. One is obviously your 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 business ventures and then what you've done post that. But to me, when I think about where and how you came from, you came into me one of the most exciting periods of American gastronomy, L.A. in the 80s, which was. I mean, I've only heard stories or read about things, but I don't think of any other time in American food, regardless of whether it's in New York or L.A., where you could do anything you fucking wanted to do. And it worked because now you had an audience that wanted it. And I don't know how the hell that happened. an audience that could pay because those were boom years for the economy. The economy was just rip-roaring. You had all these people who had money to spend. Women were fully out of the house. You had two decent incomes that could combine if you were married. But a lot of people weren't married, and they were just out there partying. I mean, the 80s was the time. A lot of cocaine, yeah. It was, and that also was part of the calculus for me of not going into the film business. I mean, little did I know that the (laughs) food business wasn't quite so different, but um, yeah. And it was when people were, young people were starting to get interested in wine and laying down cellars when they were like 25. And I mean, it was a crazy, crazy time. What were some, I mean, you have Spago, then Border Grill opened up in the 80s. Yeah. Did Wa- Waxman was still in LA then? Yeah. Yeah, Jam, Jams was in LA. Yeah, Jams was in LA. And because if, if people still, because Waxman has restaurants, what, Nashville, New York, maybe LA still? I can't even remember. Like, no, no, he's not here now. Is he? No. no. He's coming back. Yes, he's here in Century City, I believe. I believe he's a marquee person in Century City. But for, for again, listeners or people that probably don't care about any of this stuff, it's always amazing to me because Waxman was this titan figure. He's the man of the roast chicken. Yeah. There were two roast chicken people. There, <laughs> there was <laughs> Judy Rogers from Zuni Cafe was the Northern California whole roast chicken Jonathan Waxman was the Southern California whole roast chicken. And I bring that up because being serving a whole roast chicken to a table was such a sea change of anything. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, people accepted bones, people accepted carving. It was so emblematic of an embrace of a particular kind of, of French or Italian cuisine. Was Waxman the biggest chef in America in those days? Because no. when it came Wolfgang to New York, Puck, Wolfgang. Wolfgang Puck blew everybody. I mean, it was him. It was Wolfgang. I mean, that's when he built his empire. Did anyone, no one saw it coming? Oh, I think everybody saw it coming. And, and I mean, all the restaurants here are direct lineages from him. I mean, Campanile came, you know, it was Nancy and Mark who, uh, who worked for him. And, you know, Sherry Yard no. was there too, but Sherry stayed for years. With Wolfgang, and and then out of Campanile came Suzanne Goen and Karina Weibel and and Dahlia Narvez and I mean so many people who are now who own their own restaurants. So Wolfgang is 
the dep- epitome of Los Angeles. Oh food. yeah, and also the epitome of a chef who who rode the line between culinary and what was formerly thought of as entertainment, and who um, heavily went into branding and licensing. Nobody understood you could do that till him. He was a real, and that's what I always find fascinating. And I mean, about him. there was Jacques. I mean, Jacques Pepin was huge, but he was the previous generation. And he was working out of the Howard Johnson hotels until, yeah, until he became the great communicator. Yes. Um, so I, I, I could talk about this stuff forever because this is, again, like catnip for me because I and love it. And if you it. really want to hear somebody who knows every date and a timeline, Joyce Goldstein, I'm telling you, her mind is like, it's incredible. I just feel like there needs to be some documentary that covers all of this because well, it's so important. She wrote a book about it, and and um, it's it's fascinating to read. To me, it's funny to read because it's <laughs> like this is your life, but I didn't know that's what my life was. When did you open up your first restaurant, and how did that happen? 1984, and it happened because I was just you know when I was an undergrad, every summer I went to Italy. I scammed somebody to send me there. And so I would come home and I would be cooking, cooking, cooking. And all my friends were like, oh, my God, you should open a restaurant. You should open a restaurant. And I started thinking about, oh, I really do want to open a restaurant. And I wanted to open a diner. I was in love with diner aesthetics. And there was this other part of me that was really into design and architecture. And my aunt and uncle had a Schindler house in the Silver Lake Hills. So from an early age, I grew up. You know, I spent a lot of time in this amazing house, and that really changed the way I looked at the world around me, I think. I just became aware that there was this other component of life that was incredibly interesting. And so because of the Philadelphia connection, when I was growing up, there were still tons of, like, actual train car diners. And, like, looking at Stamp stainless steel could practically make me come. What could I tell you? <laughs> it was just like, I just loved that aesthetic. And so I started doing a lot of research on it. And I was going through the motions of putting together a package to try and raise money for something like that. When I was introduced to a guy who was ready to open a restaurant, who was a front of the house guy. And so without a ton of pre-planning, I sort of just jumped into that. And he said to me, why are we thinking about doing a diner? He said, you know how to make all this Italian food. We should make Italian food. And so I was like, okay. (laughs) And I mean, we had spoken about this before because I feel like there's a lot of things and a lot of people ask me, um, hey, how do you set up a business? How did you become a chef? Or most importantly, like, how did you start your first restaurant? I need to do another shout-out for a huge restaurant tour of the time, Michael's. Michael's, still around yeah. Santa Monica? Michael McCarty, and in New York. Oh, that's right. I didn't know that was the same Michael's. Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. Yep. I just learned that. Um, when I first opened up the restaurant, I was like, I'll cross bridges when I need to, and I'll figure it out when I get there. How much money did you need to raise to do your first place? 120 grand. That's exactly how much I needed to raise. <laughs> And uh, I'm just shocked that you were yeah. able to do that in New York. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, on 600 square feet. Yeah, we were we were a thousand square feet. 
and you don't know any better. And I, this is, no, even though it's, it's the beauty of stupidity, <laughs> even though this is a different, different decades and different cities, I have no doubt what you were going through was very similar to what I went through and you just do it and you don't worry about anything because you have so many other fucking things to worry about. Also, you don't even know what to worry about. You really don't even know. It's like, oh, you have to go to the building department. Okay. I mean, first of all, for me, it was like, okay, so who's going to design it? Well, the only architect I actually knew was this guy named Tom Main because he was dating a woman who was my college roommate. And 20 years later, he wins the Pritzker Prize for architecture. Um, but so I'm like, okay, so his firm, Morphosis, him and his partner, then Michael Rotundi, they'll design it because I know them and I trust them. And so we start working on this project and, oh, you know, you have to go to the building department. And at that time, I was kind of flirting with a guy who worked in his, in his studio. And so we go together to the building department and like three hours later, we come back with stamped, you know, plans, approved plans. <laughs> Everybody in the, in the architecture studio is looking at us like we have performed some miracle. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't care if it's New York or LA, that doesn't happen. Yes, our story was that people in the building department became enfolded into our, our circle of love. Right. <laughs> Did you have any idea of all the, not just the bureaucracy of building a restaurant, managing, managing people all of a sudden? Were you man Did you manage people before? Never. Never. I barely managed myself. That's what I find, again, so fascinating, not just when I hear, hear your story when you tell me this. When I talk to many of our peers, our friends that are doing it is shocking to me how woefully underprepared everyone is when they start a restaurant. And I think that's one of the things why I want to talk about shit like this, because I'm not trying to prevent people from opening a restaurant, but man, like they need, people need to have more information at their hey, fingertips. you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday who has a food business now. She has a store that makes a, a small amount of food and sells it and has a beer and wine license. And she's thinking about getting an additional space, getting a, a full liquor license, and like basically running a big restaurant. And I'm like, but you know this. <laughs> you know how horrible it is. Why do you want to do it? Yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> You, you you have no words. Yeah, right? I have no words because I, I have ridiculous memory, and I know you are the same way. the The planning stages are the most fun. Oh, it's so fun! Anything is possible. You're writing these crazy menus. Yeah, and you're thinking basically that you could do it yourself with just a couple people to help you. <laughs> I know. I, I did that. I opened up without servers. I thought in dishwashers. I was like, oh, we can do it all on our own. It's the dumbest fucking thing. And and we I only had 24 seats. How many seats? I had 27 packed in. Yeah. And people uh, waited and, and when we first opened people were waiting 2 hours on the street to get in to eat pasta and panini. Yeah, no, we had no one for the first 6 months. That's the difference. Um but I get a lot of emails, a lot of direct messaging and a, a lot many of them are around the business of it all and I've just made every mistake under the sun, and I know that you made mistakes. And I don't know, do you really, do you know anybody who was super prepared 
and um, and went about it in a super businesslike way and made the right choice of partner that they didn't later regret. Never. And the right choice of accountant that they didn't later regret. No, I, I was explaining this to someone. In some ways, I feel like if you're a restaurateur or someone that's aspiring to be a first-time restaurant owner, and <laughs> I'm sure it's the same in LA, but in New York, I feel like if this was like some National Geographic show, they're looking at us like cattle and they're wolves. And they're like, oh, look at that. And they're just waiting. And they're nipping, they're, they're, take, they're eating all the other ones that they know they can get. And they're just waiting till they can eat us. And that's how I view it. It's like, we are so fucking dumb because we exist to literally service all these other people. Whether you're the uh, uh, pest inspector, the lawyer, the accountant, the, the delivery guy that does like dairy to you name it. Everyone is just sucking you dry <laughs> and you're not ready for it. And I think what broke my heart initially was because like, I, I, I think at the core, I'm, I, I'm like a hopeless romantic. I was like, oh, this is like at the core, what I see as the most vile base nature of humanity, right? Like everything and everyone is genuinely out to sort of take from you. See, I can't, I can't have that as a guiding force in my life. It's not my guiding force, but it was first time I saw it and like, and I'm dealing with it. Yeah. See, I just, what I do, I find that so uncomfortable to really um, accept that I would rather just put it on me. I just rather say, well, I, I just, um, I'm, a, I'm an intelligent person, but not in this way. Right. But I'm a very capable person, but not in this area. Um, yeah. I mean, even now I think about certain things, certain decisions that, that I'm making in my life. And I think to myself, am I going to make another really shitty decision that's going to cost me for years? And here, here's the thing, the shitty decision, I know exactly, I, I think... I know, this, you know, this is what makes it so hard and shitty to talk about. When you're making a shitty decision, what you say now after a retrospect, that shitty decision is a selfless decision. Well, yeah, the shitty decision is just to stay open when you know you should close. But it's hard when you have all these people you need to take care of. Exactly. So you take care of all of them first and you don't take care of yourself. And then you end up going, oh, shit, I should have taken care of myself. But I didn't want to see myself as that kind of person who would put myself first. So instead, I might be a bag lady when I'm 85, you right. know? No, I, I, you know, we spoke about this before, and I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to that understood that dilemma. And I've never really asked these questions because that's something that I'm wrestling with is if you can't take care of yourself, you can't ultimately take care of other people in the long run too. But I, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. Oh, no, I definitely think that I made a mistake not taking care of myself. And I wonder sometimes that if I had taken care of myself better, which would have required you know, taking another leap of trust that could have been disastrous of asking for more help, um, that maybe there would have been a paradigm shift for me that would have eventually made my enterprise more successful and still open. You know, you never know. If you did it all over again and you went with a, like a very logical, sound, rational plan and you were like, okay, we can afford this person 
And, but when we can afford a better person, we'll get there, so on and so forth. And we're going to do all of these milestones and check marks. You've met people like this that enter the restaurant profession or try to open a restaurant. I have never met one person like that that has made it work. I just, I mean. Right? Like, there has to be a sense of, like, a couple screws are loose and somehow they're making it work. Well, all restaurant people are insane. And when you talk to employees, they always talk about how nuts their owners are. And I'm like, well, if you weren't nuts to begin with, and of course you were a little nuts, you get made crazy because you're like, it's like, it's like you're juggling chainsaws, which doesn't mean that there isn't an enormous amount of pleasure as well. But right. that's, that's what like tempers the hard stuff, the painful stuff, just enough that you delude yourself. Yes. <laughs> this sounds so bad. No, it doesn't sound bad because you know why? No one talks about it this way. They really don't. I feel like I've become a failure conciliary. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've actually been asked to moderate a panel on failure in the restaurant business. Well, that's what the restaurant business is. It's about who fails the best. I really believe that. And I was thinking actually on the way here, I was thinking that sometimes that the word failure is, is not always correct that it's another word for change. It's just change of a different kind. It's change that's accompanied by immense pain, but that usually leads to great growth. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's some financial stuff involved usually that is bad. And I'd add not just financial stuff that are bad. I think everyone, not everyone, people would like to learn from their mistakes and grow. But when you are operating a restaurant and you're not sleeping you're not seeing your family, your friends, and you are dedicated to making your staff better and making their lives better and making delicious food, the last thing you have time for is reflection about the mistakes that you've made. When I was going through the period of time where I knew I had to close and I didn't have the balls yet to do it, I would drive to church. I'm Jewish. I would drive to churches because they're open and I would go into them and just sit there for like two hours to just sort of bind my anxiety. It was like being in this sacred space that was architecturally soothing. And I would just like sit there and wait until my brain stopped chattering at me. And then I would get back in my car <laughs> and like go to one of the restaurants, you know? I wonder how is this even remotely positive for someone that might be listening like, hey, I want to open up my own restaurant. Like I actually, and you know this, I am not a optimist by any stretch of the imagination, but I want the best outcome for people. And what I am getting tired from hearing from a lot of people that are aspiring to open up their own space is that they are only focusing on the positive. <laughs> well, also I, I, I find it mystifying that some people talk about going into the restaurant business because they think it's a good business. It's a horrible business. Yeah. I mean, people who like think about it as a, um, I want to be a businessman. I'm going to be a restaurateur. I'm like, <laughs> I like feel like waving the red flags. No, no. I mean, the only way to go into it is if you have no choice. I mean, food is your love. You love feeding people. And whatever your arena is has become too small. You know, the dinner party for 12 or 20 has become too small. But, you know, doing dinners of that nature because of 
social media and various apps has become a viable way to earn a living. And so I also find that mystifying when people are doing really well catering or being private chefs and they want to throw away earning, you know, over a hundred grand a year plus benefits to be in a restaurant. Right. Yeah. I, I actually have friends who, who did that open a restaurant. The restaurant's doing really well. They were getting ready to open for dinner and they had like a look at each other in the eyes. They're married to each other. And they said, no, we're not going to open for dinner. We're doing fine. We don't need to open for dinner. <laughs> I was so I was so proud of them. I was like, yes, make a choice for life. And and I'm figuring that out, right? And we spoke about this. There there was a lot of decisions I had to make the past year or so, and I had never looked at myself financially at all, zero. Just never. And I think people were like, oh, what? you were like a housewife. Somebody just put money in your account, and you. I, I I hate. It's so much. I hate thinking about it so much. All I ever wanted to know was at the end. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't even know what was the end. No, 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 no. Like, um, only bother me if something like really needs to be done. And I paid someone to just handle it. And I never asked for, I really never asked for anything. And I think there was some, definitely some naivete for sure. But there was also me just being- Denial. Denial and passive. Because I never wanted to- this is so funny. I am someone that loves confrontation in so many ways. Really? Where I have, where I, where I definitely shy away from confrontation was when it comes to these kinds of topics. I don't know why for the life and of I me. And I mean, when you're in partnerships that have so many moving parts and they all, you know, the red corpuscle of the business is money. You need to be able to talk about that stuff. I really believe that business partners should have a therapist or or at the very least an outside sounding board that's neutral that people can go to and sit down and lay out what's going on. And then that way it could get looked at in somewhat of a, you know. But you never did a restaurant <laughs> thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money. Like I, I literally had no intention of doing. No, and, but I did for, you know, the first Two years of, of the first restaurant was insanely, insanely successful um, financially, too. I mean, we paid off our investors in the first year, even after we doubled our size and financed that from our own profits. And we thought that was going to happen forever. Yeah. But then, you know, 1987 or 1991 happened, you know, the recession, the first, you know, the first giant recession of my life. And I walked away from two restaurants. Change. Change. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from the hiring sites of Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. 
C-H-A-N-G, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. That's the, I, I hate to wrap it around positive. This is advice for myself too. Just like, don't think that it's going to continue forever, right? Like, it's so hard to be prepared for the downturns in the restaurant business. Hey, listen, the economy is cyclical. It is a guarantee. And I'm worried about everyone, including my own restaurants. Like, how do you survive when it's not good? When it's not good. And how do you know when your greatest hits are behind you? When, That's so fucking hard. When do you know <laughs> when the the incredible leap of creativity that you did that by some grace of God connected to a mass of people who wanted to pay you for what you were creating. When do you know that, that when that energy has just mutated because, you know, you've gotten older, your life is different. It's the, you know, the culture is different. How do you know that? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, 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 I wonder about that all the time. And I, cause I think that it's always going to end. <laughs> I really do. Like, I, I think that everything's going to end all the time. Anything that's around the corner is going to be bad. When you are young, and particularly for myself, I did not, and this is not trivial, I did not envision life past a certain age. I just, every decision was, doesn't matter. There was no consequence as long as I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. And I remember talking to so many people, whether they are lawyers or accountants, be like, I don't care. Like, if that's a problem, it's a good kind of problem. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. And I never expected to encounter all the problems later on. And to rectify a lot of that stuff was incredibly painful because it was a clear sign of my youth and the reckless abandonment I could do. And that's a lot of meta shit going on there, but it was unequivocally like, oh, this is, now you have to be a fucking adult, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I think I made a lot of decisions really terrible decisions because I thought, I don't know what I thought, that the future was endless, that opportunity, opportunity would always come and could um, rectify things. I mean, you know, now I would say to any restaurateur, if you're eyeing at putting a payroll on a credit card or- <laughs> Which happens all the time. Which happens all the you time. You might think that's a fucking incredibly stupid statement or that's impossible. It happens all, all the, the time. time. And and sometimes people say, "Oh, I just want to do it to get miles," <laughs> but then, but then you have to pay it back or refinance your house to pay off some, you know, government debt. You know, I mean, you put yourself in a really disadvantaged position for the benefit of everyone else. Yeah, when you should just say, you know, this business can't support itself; it has to go. And I feel like. You know, when you read stories of the great industrialists of the early 20th century and you think about how they were constantly reinventing themselves and maybe because it was widgets, to them they were producing widgets and to them maybe their workers were widgets too. Um, they were able to just let stuff go and then start anew with, you know, renewed vigor. But it seems just I've never ha had that experience. I mean, every time is just so hard. And another thing, too, is you are sacrificing or pouring in the, the best parts of your young adulthood, right? 
And and coming up with your best ideas. Like, this is going to make people laugh, but tomato, mozzarella, and basil. Okay, before Anjali did it, that was not on every single menu of every Italian restaurant in the world. You know, or, I, I mean, there's there were whole parts of my menu that became like a template. And um, I never recognized that. Ruth Reichel is the one that <laughs> wrote about that. And then, so how do you come back from that? How do you top, how do you top that? You, what you do is you just change your life and you spend it interviewing other people. This is hard. Uh, man. Uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. No, it's just like, because it's a lot. Like, I think about Deep, who's closing Good Girl Dinette, and it breaks my fucking heart. That interview, that interview was spectacular. It fucking breaks my heart. Whenever people say to me, I've never listened to the David Chang podcast, I say, start <laughs> with the interview with Deep Tran. I bet, you know, the thing with Deep is she, to me, she's making an incredible courageous. She's doing what she needs to do, what she should have done maybe a year ago. And I'm glad that she found the courage to do it. She's an incredible person. She's so strong. And I can't wait to see what she's going to do next. And that's the thing is that, because there's a lot that I'm, again, projecting, because here I am, and I'm lamenting the demise of her restaurant that she's closing. Good Girl Dinette. Good Girl Dinette. And here I am, and I have a restaurant group that's gone through its ups and downs, but we're growing. And I want to make sure that we do it right. Um, that is imperative to me. And I know that we have a lot of things to improve upon, but it is so hard for me to see someone that's tried to run the restaurant in the most honorable way possible. Not get the, not just the recognition, but like, it was it was not a failure by any stretch of the imagination. No, no. nine and I, years, and that's what I and that's what I kept telling her. I mean, and the thing about LA is she was just at the leading edge of an explosion, an explosion where every week brought another opening. So the cycle of not being the new kid became faster and faster and faster. You know, I think about my restaurant, how I was able to survive for twenty seven years was. There weren't that many coming online, so we were we had time to be entrenched and become a destination. And um, and I feel like, in a way, after listening to that interview with you, I feel like Deep is more than Good Girl Dinette. She is, and that she's not going to be able to really find out how much more and in what way until it's gone. But I, I actually get angry when I think about why the fuck didn't. Not you or people that supported her. How come she didn't get more love? Well, you and I know what, what part of it was. Part of it was she was serving a food that you could find super cheap in a million other places. She's buying the best ingredients possible. The best ingredients, paying living wages. Which is, again, when you talk to her about it, and this is what's so heartbreaking, that's st she knows that's still not enough. And... Why she's a fucking angel to me is similar to you. Uh, you guys are similar in the sense that you're always servicing other people. And when you meet Deep, her existence is to benefit people around her. She's such a community-driven She's such a community driven person. And I think that um, we're at a time now where we need more of those. 
and um, and I know she's going to do really interesting things, and I think she'll do things that can take care of herself now. And I find it really fascinating, actually, that her friend, Min Fan, just opened um, Porridge and Puffs. Okay. I have, just I have. As, as Good Girl Dinette is winding down, Porridge and Puffs is starting, and Min is also another just sort of lightning rod, strong woman, so interested in community, wanting her place to become sort of an anchor for for a certain kind of community. And um, I just can't wait to see what happens with her. It destroys me that Jonathan isn't going to write about her opening. Um, well, that's why your voice is so much more important now. It really is. Because you but are I'm born and bred. But I'm not a food critic. But you are I a great can't... writer. You are a great author. And you have a voice. You have yeah, people have trust to, you. At Good Food, we're trying, we're going through right now figuring out what that space is going to be, how we're going to shine the light on places that like Jonathan did. Um, we don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know yet how we're doing it. But, but if we'll my come. two cents are is this is that you should focus on yourself a little bit more. And by doing that and by being bigger voice, you're going to help more people. That's just my two cents. Thank you. But it's a radio show. It needs to be a two-way conversation. I need to have somebody else to talk to. But there's other avenues. You're a great writer. <laughs> she's so she's so mad at me. I can tell. Good, she's good, for, so producer, <laughs> good for producer Nick Liao is sitting in a chair. He's agreeing, he's, he's <laughs> he's agreeing with me. <laughs> I, I think if anyone's going to help with the voice of Los Angeles, it's definitely you. You can be one of whoever's out there. No, but I definitely feel. Well, I think like so many of us who were close to Jonathan are reevaluating our lives. We're all like going, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? Um, you know, am I working hard enough on what it is that I do? And I've had people come up to me going saying, you're not going anywhere, are you? And it's like, what, die? I mean, I don't know. I hope not. And and yes, I'm fully committed to Los Angeles. I mean, it's my home. I've spent my entire life here. And um, you know, I, I've often said it's very odd to grow up in a in a place where you don't ever have to leave because it changes so much around you every five years. It's like you're living in a new place. It's an interesting time. How do we make sure the stories that need to be told continue to be told? Because it makes sense to me. I, I, I'm sure if Jonathan was in a, like, now that I know, know certain things, like he probably would have made a bigger story about deep closing good girl. Right. And oh, yeah. to me, it signifies the fact that we are missing something because yes, people may know that it's closing, but why did it have to take this long for it to be in the popular consciousness of people that dine out in LA? Like it needs to be supported. More restaurants like this need to be supported. Well, I think there need to be other venues in Los Angeles besides Eater where people go to, to get their information. And I'm very encouraged by the fact, ironically, that the new ownership of the LA times is pouring money into the paper is hiring, just they're on a hiring binge. I think the end result of Michael Bauer retiring in San Francisco and Jonathan Gold leaving us way too soon in Los Angeles is that there will be many more people writing about restaurants in Northern and Southern California than there were four months ago. Hmm. Because if you do make it in this business and you are in it for 
nine plus years, like you've seen it all, you've done it all, and you have more grit than just about anyone I can imagine. And it's the first of, I'm positive Deep's going to do something. Maybe Good Girl continues on in some various fashion. Um, But I was wondering like how many other restaurants need a platform yeah, that are doing need- it good, that are getting the good ingredients, that are treating their staff in a completely fair, equitable way. And it's interesting because— And are good cooks. Jonathan and I used to talk about this a lot, where he would he would muse over whether or not he needed to add something to the reviews that was an addendum that basically said they buy from the farmer's market, they buy meat from, you know, a ranch— um, that something that gave people more information than than just the not just but more information than what a review would normally cover, um, sort of the the social justice element of of what we're talking about, you know. But it it really I think diners have to also understand how much power they have. Diners have so much power with their choices that they make and. The fact that diners are still so unwilling to accept an all-in price for dining, you know, they'll be happy to lay down a $20 tip, but if that tip is included in the overall, then they write a nasty note on Yelp. Hmm. Diners have to recognize that people deserve to be paid. Do you think that a lot of the ill wills of our industry, because the culinary industry is obviously going through a period of reckoning that is well, well— you overdue. mean the Me Too? Not just Me Too. It's like everything. Everything, yeah. Everything has to yeah. get fucking updated. Well, the pirate ship needs to become maybe not a cruise liner, but it, you know, it needs to clean itself up. Exactly. And part of it is a lot of the cultural aspects. But one of the things I think that is not getting the recognition uh, importance is the economics of it all. From how you open a restaurant to the legal representation to the accounting. It used to be in my day, it was like... <laughs> You price menu items four times more than your ingredients. Yeah, 3x to 5x more. That was just it, right? Because it's baked in certain things. Right. This also includes tipping and no tipping. And I genuinely think this is not a lazy way to talk about it. But I think so many, it's not a blanket thing, but a lot of the ills of our business will be cured if people pay more for their food. I, I, I agree. But that's the reason I closed. I mean, my waiters tried to have an intervention with me so many times about my price levels. But my restaurant was such a family restaurant. People were, I mean, regulars, it wasn't like we had regulars who came once a month. We had regulars who came three times a week because probably cheaper (laughs) to eat at Anjali than to make food at home. And I was afraid to displace those people. I was afraid that it wouldn't be that that children wouldn't be um, acceptable in a restaurant there were, where the prices were maybe twenty five percent more. But definitely, I mean, everything needs to cost more. I mean, we've we've devolved to the lowest common dena- denominator in terms of the food chain, like costs of you know protein. And it, are, do you think it's possible though to have a a restaurant aligned with like profitability? And ethical standards across the board? And, and no, currently, no. I mean, amongst a very tight elite bubble, yeah. But but in the regular world, no. Man, I thought this podcast was going to be more hopeful and positive than it was starting out to be. <laughs> oh man! But these are conversations that I don't know if people hear. Quite frankly, 
about the, the industry. And it can't get better until we talk about it. The industry, you know, to, Tony made the industry so sexy and, and so um, alluring. And that sexiness and that allure that brought a lot of us into it. I mean, I remember when I first worked, went to, to work in that restaurant for two weeks for free. I had never worked in a restaurant before, just catering. And for me, it felt like putting on a jacket that had been made for me. Mm-hmm. It was like, I belong here. And, and part of that was the free-willing nature of it. So how do you balance that openness and fun and creativity and the, the jolt you get from being on the edge on a line working hard every night? With all of the other things that need to be so much more humane. I don't know how it's possible. Well, I think talking about it is definitely first stage. <laughs> and that's the reality, believe it or not. That's how far away we are from even having a, a more meaningful conversation is these are things that are not publicly spoken about. I don't think. Maybe they are. I, I just don't. I have them in private. But if I'm a younger cook, this is not shit that I ever learned about, you know? So... Fuck. I feel like we could talk so much more about this, but um, you closed the restaurants and— Yeah, I closed the last one in January of 2012. And I know how awful that was. It was awful. We've spoken about this privately, but we didn't. I know I didn't even want to get into it because I can see how emotional it, it still was. I'm tearing you. up now. I'm the kind of person that I just put something in a box, close the box, and move on. My mother's motto was put one foot in front of the other. I still can't bring myself to read the, the book that was there at Angeli for the last six weeks it was open. I open it occasionally, and I'll read a couple of the notes to me. But for me, I, I'm not married. I don't have children. That was my family. You got Paco Suave. <laughs> That's true. I have little Mr. Paco, my little fluff ball. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really painful. But I'm I'm glad I did it. I wish I had did it. I mean, I was going to do it four years earlier, but then there was, I was going to sell it. I was getting ready to sell because I had heard people were selling the restaurant for like $800,000. i am like, oh, my God, if I do that, I can pay off all my debt. And then the recession happened. Mm. So I just hung on so I didn't have to deliver my... Employees who had worked for me for 10 to 20 years plus into that horror. And that's what I keep on wondering about too, because I've made so many mistakes financially and just growing a business. And I wonder if there can be some kind of service or some kind of group or body of chefs that can help restructure a lot of this shit for chefs. Because... What bothers me right now, and I get intensely angry about it, is I see individuals out there that are raising money for other chefs, right? And I view them as like Columbia Records or, or, or RCA back in the 50s, basically understanding that like, oh, this person's in need. I'm going to lock them in forever. And um, you know what? Like, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. I'm going to show everyone that like we're going to help this person out, this restaurant group out, and then I'm going to get more and more people. 
because I know they need help and we'll help them the but way the, they need. But the person at the bottom, that's just like predatory. Exactly. And that fucking pisses me off. And that the only solution I see right now in the industry are a handful of people and groups that are doing that. And I don't know what to do because the other scenario is, hey, if I don't get this group's help, we're going to go out of business. And then it becomes sort of like, it's just not right. And I'm looking for ways because a lot of my peer group, like, hey, Dave, what do I do? I'm like... Fuck. Like I I'm I'm trying to figure this shit out myself, but we we are woefully underprepared. Don't go to a venture capitalist. <laughs> it's like when I hear the venture capitalist money is going into any part of the the food business that isn't, I don't know, structured for that kind of thing, it makes me crazy because it's like they want their money out. But that's another thing I've learned and 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 I'm lucky to have really fantastic partners, right? And I'm also incredibly fortunate in understanding that that happened recently too for me, but I went years without having any, it was just me all in on everything. I couldn't be more leveraged on loans. I have everything leveraged. And I don't recommend that to anyone, particularly when my friends have kids and like, I didn't have anyone to respond to be responsible other than myself. I just... I continue to look at this profession and I'm shocked at how relatively broken it all is. And, and I'm happy to have spoken to you about this because I had no idea the pains that you went through and are continuing to go through in terms of your career and, and that restaurant, because I, I, it's not something I want to bring up, you know? I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I was one of those people who refinanced my house a couple of times to pay off debt. And, and I walked, you know, I, I basically walked away from my restaurants for a, a, an amount of money that was like insanely stupid. And but you had no choice. I had no choice, and I had no choice, and I just wanted it to be over. I just I didn't want to be in that limbo of knowing it was going to happen, knowing it needed to happen, but it wasn't happening. So I just picked a date, found some people to give me a couple thousand dollars, and then got out. And and so the end result of that is that I still owe money. I, I, I'm paying money every month on debt that I have from the restaurant. And, and thank God that I live in Los Angeles and my house is worth something. You know, I used to tell people, you want to open a restaurant, pay me $5,000 and I'll sit with you in a room until that feeling goes away. <laughs> and guess what? That's incredibly thoughtful. <laughs> it's a good business. I really think the models are either you open someplace tiny and you do as much as you can yourself, and maybe you have a, a spouse or a, a partner that you really trust, but, you know, <laughs> relationships change over time, or you have to go in with the idea that you're going to be big. It, it's the middle road is really tough to hoe. And that's also what I think is hindering our food scene. There's nothing in between anymore. It's harder and harder to find the in between. It's true. It's super, super big or it's super, super small. And I don't like the fact that like we are the super, super big thing now that like, it's very weird for me to think in a meta way. It's like, oh, like, are we part of the problem or the solution? You're, you're just part of the, you're part of the, population of what's available. I mean, it's, you're neither, you're not a devil or an angel. 
<laughs> so if you, if you you if you just listen to what I just said, that's literally how it's like uh, how I talk to, to Evan. I have some kind of moral conundrum that I'm going through, and I'm like, I need some kind of sage advice. I'm going to ask Evan, and this is the answer she gives me. <laughs> um, listen, it's getting hot in this room because the air condition's off, and I would love to continue to talk to you forever and ever, and we hopefully will have you back or. Um, yeah, maybe we could talk about po- more positive things. Positive things. Things that I love in the world. <laughs> I've been trying to get her to write a book on small oven cooking. <laughs> she laughs, but I think she's the world's expert on small oven cookery. I would just rather have a real kitchen <laughs> if you know somebody out there who'd like to underwrite, you know, buy, buy some kitchen cabinets for me. I, I, I would put little plaques on it. Like, you know how it says underwritten by Wells Fargo, it would say underwritten by insert your name here. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, not, I really would love you to open up a pizza shop again. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Seriously. Let me tell you, whenever I read articles talking about the pizza scene in LA and they go through the history of who's been cooking where and what never is Angeli, a place that slung pies for almost 30 years, even mentioned I just I I think the pizza the pizza situation in LA is just so like on fire now. I like doing what I'm doing now. You know, this weekend I did a little dinner party for 12 people. I carted all the stuff over there and everybody helped me cook. So it's sort of like I I borrow a family <laughs> for an evening and we all cook together and then we sit down and eat. I, I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to just tell Evan, you tell me exactly what you, you want me to do. We're partners in this and we're going to make this fucking pizza operation hum. <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Cause I just want to see you back in the game somehow in some way. I, that's one of my things that I have my fingers crossed because I think that, uh, we should have it. Right. That's very kind of you. Uh, and lastly, because it wouldn't be right. And if you don't know Evan, she is literally one of the most generous people out there. And she is the only fucking time she ever badgers me for anything. Because she won't. For anything else for herself is for charities. Yeah, I, I send you text messages <laughs> saying, you have to donate to this place. <laughs> but what I love about you is you're the only one I badger who sends me the receipt <laughs> to prove that you yeah. did it. <laughs> Because, like, I know it means something to you. You don't want people that are just like, whatever. But I want you to know that, like, I take your words seriously. Like, I'm going to fucking do it. That. What are some of the charities? Okay. Um, Mary's List. Very M- near to your heart. Yeah. M-I-R-Y-S, Mary's List. Mary's List acts as a welcome wagon and support to refugee families that are coming from the Middle East. It's been a trickle now, but they also just help sustain families that are really struggling and have very little. Um, literally, they have families come, they're escorted to an empty apartment, and the people don't know what to do. And what Mary did was create this idea of wish lists for refugees. So <laughs> a refugee family could be um, in the position of having an empty apartment and when they go online on Mary's list in four days, these boxes start to arrive from Amazon. And it's very powerful. Not only are things being delivered that they need, like a bed or clothes for a baby, but 
these strangers that they don't know have basically shown their affection and their support by sending something. There's also um, an organization called Together and Free that's um, working to support the uh, reunification of migrant children with parents. And they pay for plane fare to bring a parent or a child um, somewhere. They they um, offer um, people who accompany the child or parents and just facilitate the whole reunion. Um, also here in Los Angeles, we have a food policy council, the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. A lot of stuff that we talk about um, in food is structural, and structural things in the economy or in the system can't change without political change. And the LA Food Policy Council tries to identify the things that they can most leverage their influence on to change policy, and they could use a little help right now. And you're more than likely going to see Evan. Oh, and then, of course, there's KCRW. <laughs> this is, <laughs> Nick is very happy about this. KCRW, which is, you know, a small, independent um, NPR station. Uh, we basically raise it all ourselves. Right now, we're doing it through the UnDrive, so we're not interrupting um, interrupting programming, but it really is the little engine that could, I have to say. And if you listen to it and you've enjoyed it over the years, it's something you should definitely throw us, support. Throw us so many. Right. And I again, I, I'm always amazed. Uh, last time, it was probably what, several, six months ago, you were cooking up a storm over two days for Miri's List. And it's like, she was doing it all by herself. She had a couple of helpers at the end, but I was like, fucking Christ, Evan, you are, you are working like a maniac no, I had help. My friend Karina Weibel, who owned Canale for many years, was helping me. And I had some young chefs that I've met over the years helping me. But, you know, you and just do what you do. I know. And that's the thing. Uh, if, if there is anything positive about this podcast, it is simply the fact that if you do manage to go through all the the hardships and to still remain positive and at the core, what is best about this business, quite frankly, as absurd as it can be, and it is, to have people that are still like hopeful and optimistic that you can do good things. and uh, The relationships are the best part yeah. of the whole thing. That's yeah. why we do what we do. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Thank you, David. All right.